Hey, um, it, you'll see an email later on today. Some of you have, have asked for this outline, this Dr. Babbler outline, um, and so on emotion. So I've I've put that in the email. You'll see it come later on in case you've been trying to take notes. But I'll walk you through this 15-point outline that I'll be working through through this whole series. Number one, God has and expressed his emotions. God's emotions are righteous, holy, just, loving, and always appropriate. Number three, we are created in the image of God. Number four, we have emotions. Number five, our emotions are the result of the attitude of the heart. Number six, we talked about this one last week. Our emotions originate in our thoughts. And we are fully responsible for them. Number seven, our emotions are sin-impacted and sin-impaired. Number eight, our emotions are not always righteous, just loving and appropriate. Number nine, the key to our emotions is that they are to be God-honoring. Number ten, with God's help, we can control them. Number eleven, our emotions alone should not motivate us nor be the central focus of our life. Number twelve, we are responsible to and must be obedient to God no matter how we feel. Number 13, the summary of the Christian life is to love God and love neighbor. Number 14, God is concerned with our hearts. And number 15, when our focus is on loving God and loving neighbor and our heart is right before God, we can deal with our emotions in a God-honoring way. Those, those are the whole 15, just so you have it. Those are going to be coming to email. This week, we're going to really kind of finish up some of what we talked about last week. Um, last week, I did not actually finish the message. I ran out of time. Can everybody give me a shock look? Yeah. So we're going to dive into um, number seven and eight on this outline and kind of finish up some thoughts from number six. But um, let's do this. I want to do something just a little bit different because um, I just want to, right? Is that enough? Okay. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand to your feet. Okay. And I'm going to give you um, a couple of minutes um, because here's the thing I've discovered. Not, not everybody is going to be able to stay today for our family meal. And I want to give you an opportunity to do this. Um, I know this, this shouldn't be weird for us, but I want to give you about two to three minutes. Okay. I want you to think right now, what is something God has done in my life this week? Right. This is what we do at our edify time. Right. Um, but some of you may not get to hear this and your soul is missing some really good things. So right now, here's, I want you to think. Before we get into our message, I'm going to give you two or three minutes here in a minute to, to talk to people around you and say one thing, what has God done this week, right? People come and there's, I mean, life is not easy, right? They come and, and they need to hear. So it could be as simple as, I got up today and it was a miracle that I even got to come to church today. It could be, I got some great news from the doctor or I got to talk to somebody I haven't got to talk to in a long time. Or there was a relationship we reconciled. Or this great thing happened at work. Or here's something that my kids, one of my kids said, you know, this week. Or man, I went through difficulty, but here's what God's word. What's one thing? Just think right now. What's one thing this week that God, is, that God has done? All right? Think through one thing. All right? Think it. Are y'all thinking? Okay. If you don't have a one thing, then just go, I don't have anything. Tell me yours, <laughs> right? So I don't have anything. Nick, want, Nick wants me to think, and I'm, you know, I'm only one cup of coffee into the day, okay? So we want to give you that opportunity. So we're going to do this. I'm going to give you about two to three minutes. Go around. You can walk over. You can walk anywhere you want. This, if you see a person who is a guest who's new to our church, right, you go over to them, right? 
Um, and and you, you don't make this hard on them. Tell them about yours. All right. I'm just going to give you two or three minutes to do this. Then I'm going to jump back in here. We're going to jump back in the message. I know this is a little bit different, uh, but it's really not different if you've been hanging around our church. This is kind of what we do. I want you to kind of hear the grace of God, what God's people come with. Does that make sense what I'm asking you to do? So last week, we were talking about this idea of um, emotions. Now we're looking at the anthropology of emotions still, the study of man, like how has God made man, right? And one of the things I had said last week in our message, it is controllable yet corrupted. You know, corrupted yet controllable. Emotions are controllable, but yet we got to realize there's corruption. And the idea, we did number six on this outline from Dr. Babbler, um, who, if you don't know, he's uh, the head of the Biblical Counseling Department at Mid-America Seminary. Our emotions originate in our thoughts, and we are fully responsible for them. Right? So I, I want to get that idea across, and then I'm jumping from that idea. It leads me into number seven and eight. Our emotions are sin-impacted and sin-impaired, and our emotions are not always righteous, just loving and appropriate. So I'm going to get to seven and eight today, which just completes the thought of our emotions are corruptible yet controllable, right? This kind of continued from last week. Now, I did tell you last week I had some kind of pastoral insight. You can control sinful emotion. You can engage and embrace godly emotion, right? Like if you spontaneous clapping and like enjoying that, that second song. I mean, you enjoyed all of them, but I could tell the Lord knit something in that second one. You can engage and embrace natural emotions in life. Okay, like, for instance, grieving. Something grievous happens in life. You can embrace that until it becomes sinful, right? Like, for instance, um, I'll show you this. Go to 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'll show this to you. In the context, the Lord's, uh, Paul's addressing Christians, um, Christians who are alive, but they've had their, um, their, their believing family members or brothers, they, they've died, and they're worried about what's going to happen when the Lord comes back if somebody's already died in the Lord. And he says in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. I love that the, the euphemistic word, Asleep being used instead of death, because that's really what happens when a person dies. Their soul goes to be with the Lord. Their body is basically asleep. The Lord will raise it up someday. And he says this, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So he says, when you grieve, that's an emotion over these brothers and sisters in the Lord that have already died. Don't you grieve as those who have no hope, which he's referring to. The pagans, those who don't have Jesus. So we see this example even here, this idea of even an emotion, one that we're supposed to have, one that's okay, grieving. He says, just don't do it in a sinful, unbiblical way, which is in this grieving without hope, which is so I tell you, you can engage and embrace in the natural emotions until they become sinful, right? So if you're if you're driving a car and something happens uh, that you need to maneuver out of that fast, then, you know, those natural emotions, that fear, that what, what may happen, that's, that's a good thing, right? If it's storming outside and you drive more cautiously because there's a natural fear that something might happen, you might lose control of the car, that's not a bad thing. It's just bad if it becomes sinful, which is this idea of, well, then I'll never drive again, right? Or, 
You understand? So it, it, there's a level. Now, this leads me into my next thought. And we're going to basically camp out in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. I want to transition from our emotions originate in our thoughts and we are fully responsible for them to the idea of number 7 and 8 on our outline. Our emotions are sin-impacted and sin-impaired. And our emotions are not always righteous, just loving, and appropriate. Genesis chapter 4. We're going to spend some time in the story of Cain and Abel, and we're going to see it through this story. Would you do this? Would you stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word? Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Verse 2. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the process of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard to Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted And if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Would you go with me just prayer one last time? We just need your help. We really need you. Um, In all this series... um, it really seems like this is just a pivotal, some pivotal principles to understand today about our emotions. And um, would you let us as God's people um, not miss it and help it to get communicated well for your glory and honor. And God's people said, amen. So you can see in this story, you can see the idea of emotions. You can see this idea of they originate in our thoughts and we are fully responsible for them. When you look in the text of chapter 4, notice this that God says, Why? It says, So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Do you see that? Do you see the emotion that he's describing, the emotion that's going on in his life? He was angry and his face fell in the moment. But look in the text of chapter 4, verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not well, sin is crouching at the door. So basically what we have here is, is Cain is describe, is showing sinful emotion in the moment. The Lord notices this and says, wait a minute, you don't have to be like this. You can actually control this. If, if you would not, if you would do well, wouldn't you be accepted? Hey, sin is crouching at your door. It wants you. It's waiting to devour you. You can control this. Notice it originates in his thoughts. He, there's thoughts. So uh, when you read this story, a lot of people wonder, what's going on here in this, you know, in this story? And I'll share some more here in a little bit when you look at all of Scripture. We interpret Scripture with all of Scripture. But one of the things we see kind of in between the lines here is this idea that there's, there's an offering that, that Abel makes. It's a blood offering. It's of the firstborn of the flock. Okay? This is not uncommon. There was an offering made when, when Adam and Eve fell. They tried to cover themselves with their own Fig leaves, right? With fig leaves that, notice fig leaves don't last. But then God 
slays an animal, sacrifices an animal and covers Adam and Eve. This points forward towards redemption. We see here that, that obviously there was this idea that was built out around that they were to offer a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. It's pointing and showing forth the work of the ultimate blood sacrifice that comes someday, which would be his son Jesus. But we notice in the text, look in verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. It says nothing about first fruits. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock in their fat portions. And the Lord had regard to Cain, Abel in his offering. So there was a type of offering that was to be brought. However, if you read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, we find that not only really the, the bulk of what's really going on is there was something wrong in Cain's heart way before this, right? I'll read for you a couple portions of Scripture just so you don't have to turn, flip back and forth. But let me read for you the text. If I can find out where I printed them out in my notes. Hebrews eleven four. here's what it says. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice by faith than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So Abel offers a sacrifice by faith. Cain does not. Now, what's interesting is this word faith. Faith and belief in God's word. Faith and obedience to God's word go hand in hand. And so the very offering that Cain was offering was a, was a lack of faith because it was a lack of what God had actually told them to do. In the text we see in chapter 4, he says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? He's basically saying, The offering that you made. But you will not, he says, And if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door. But, but before all that, understand that Cain actually describes someone who's evil, someone whose heart is far from the Lord. If a person's heart is far from the Lord, then their actions are going to be far from the Lord. He didn't have faith. He did not have faith to believe what God's word had said. Cain decided to offer of his own accord, not what God had actually said. And the interesting thing is when you look at other passages of Scripture, if you were to read the book of Jude and look in verse 11, it actually is descriptive of Abel as part of, part of um, I'm sorry, not Abel, Cain as Someone who is evil, who gives their life over to sensual desire. 1 John 3 says this about Cain. We should not be like Cain, who was, an e- who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. John uses this as an example that the world's going to hate you even when you love and serve the Lord. Abel loves and serves the Lord and... and the worldly Cain comes against him. Verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whosoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So you see even him using the idea of no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Using the story of Cain. Cain would be descriptive of an unbeliever, someone unregenerate, someone far from the Lord, someone you were saved in the Old Testament by looking forward to the cross. We're saved by looking back to the cross. Their forward-looking towards the cross was not as clear, of course, as ours. But yet, when you read Hebrews chapter 11, you discover that it is always by faith that someone was actually justified before God leading up to the ultimate time of the cross. So we find this. Cain and Abel. There was a particular, it seems, that there was a particular sacrifice that God had instructed. And Abel, from a heart of faith and belief, was willing to obey God 
in faith, offer the sacrifice that God wanted. Cain, unwilling to do that. Cain, offering what he thought was best according to what he wanted. There was a worship issue going here. We have two different types of people that seem to be described in the Scripture. A believer and a non-believer. Someone who is of their father, the murderer, the devil, and the other that is not. By the way, just so you do understand later on, Cain's line is a very ungodly line. In fact, through Cain's line is actually where polygamy gets introduced into mankind and starts to corrupt God's ideal for one man, one woman. Now, I'm saying all this to say this about Cain just to lay the background of what's going on. But I want you to notice something. Look in verse 5. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Cain, out of a heart of wrong worship, worshiping self, He didn't do what God told him to do. And he was upset. He was very angry. This is not a justified anger. This is unrighteous anger. This is an unrighteous, angry emotion that he's having in the moment. And look after that. It says, and his face what? Fell. Just as a side note. This is kind of extra. Bonus, if you will. His face fell. There is a link between the immaterial soul of man and what happens to his body. Right? Eat all the leafy green spinach you want. I mean, we are going to die. Gravity is pulling us down to the grave. But I will say this. The person who lets their emotions run amok by not looking at things from God's perspective, it will affect you physically. It will affect you. If we give in to sinful anger, if we give in to the full vent, it will destroy us. If we give in to the full expression of sinful anxiety. It will make the face fall. It will affect the body. You know that even some of, I can't say all, but even some of the physical things in life are a direct result of how we have, how emotions have overrun our life. We see it here, even in the text. Now, what's interesting, you see God's response to Cain in this. He says, why are you angry? Your face has fallen. If you do well, Will you not be accepted? So God says, there's something that I've told you that you've missed. This, this is exactly what Abel has done, and you know it, and, and you haven't done it. Of course, we see the totality of Scripture that Abel was offering it by faith, believing God's word of what God had said. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. He warns them and says, sin wants you. It wants to come for you. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must what? You must what? Master it. Rule over it. Do you remember number six on our outline? This idea, um, our emotions originate in our thoughts, and we are fully responsible for them. His thoughts were not of faith. His thoughts were not of obedience. Therefore, his actions were not of faith, were not of obedience. They originate in his thoughts, and he's fully responsible for them. God tells him, You were fully responsible. You must rule over it. Something can be done. You must obey me. You must offer this in faith. I mean, God sees the heart more than the actions. God sees the heart. But the right heart will lead to the right actions. So there's this whole thing going on, this whole dynamic that we see in the totality of scriptures. Our emotions originate in our thoughts and we are fully responsible for them. Now, look what happens. He doesn't fight it. He doesn't rule over those emotions. He doesn't, by faith, believe God. You can't believe, just so you understand, faith is not gullibility. Faith is not invisible intellectualism, right? 
if you have faith in something, there needs to be credible evidence of faith, right? And so Abel's faith to offer the sacrifice that he offered was based on the substance of what God had instructed and knew. How do we know God instructed him? Because he instructs Cain and says, if you would do right. That means somewhere God must have informed them of what he had wanted. So we find here that he doesn't obey the Lord. He doesn't, he doesn't by faith believe God's word. The person who does by faith does not believe God's word, trust God's word, but trust their emotions. This is what happens in life. Life will spiral out of control. Look in verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. You know, people don't just do things on the outside out of just capriciousness. You have to have already thought that in your soul. You already had to meditate over that in your heart. Cain was not evil, but first evil because he murdered his, his, his brother. He was evil way before that. And it was reflected in his relationship with God. It was reflected in his lack of faith and belief in what God had told him. And so it rules over him. It, the very thing that God warned. And notice this, even the unrepentance of his life, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Just a side note, when God asks a question, he's not, it's, not, it's not that he doesn't know. He's trying to draw it out of us. I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Doesn't this look like a person who is self-righteous in all they do? It's other people's fault. Here's some things that happen with our emotions. Well, even even when it comes to sinful anger, I, there's this idea where we'll say, I only got angry because they what? It made me angry. No. That would be the same thing as Cain. Cain saying, I, I only mur- Cain made me, uh, you know, Abel made me murder him because of what he did. Because he, he pleased God. By the way, have you ever heard this idea? This happens a lot. Trust your heart. What does your heart feel? Like, just trust what your heart feels and says. Cain trusted his heart, and what did he do? He murdered, right? God warned him, don't do what your heart wants. And then Cain goes and does it. I mean, I, I want to tell you, if we function by this idea of trust your heart, we'll trust our hearts enough to murder. That's what we'll do. Our hearts actually aren't completely trustworthy. Now, we'll talk more about the renewed heart and what that can happen with that. But what God had commanded them to do was to trust his word, to believe them, to believe in what he had said about this sacrifice, to believe and how the position of the heart that was to happen in this. And he didn't. And God warned him, you can control this. And he didn't. But so this leads me to the next thing. So Cain's emotions, his thoughts, uh, you know, his thoughts are a direct reflection of his emotions. And he can control them. But then this leads us to our next part, number seven in the outline. Our emotions are sin impacted and sin impaired. Look back in the text. In Cain, verse five. Cain was very angry. His face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Your face is fault. Why is your face fallen? If you do well. By the way, just a side note. Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? The Lord says this to Cain. The Lord sees everything we're doing. Even the emotions of our heart. And then how they start to display themselves. Like the Lord sees that. The Lord sees it the whole time. We think sometimes that the Lord's only... This pleased when our sin gets on the outside where everybody else can observe it. But the Lord sees it way before. And it still is a violation and cosmic treason. 
By the way, just another side note. Free stuff, right? You didn't even, we're not even going to pass the offering plate for this. Do you notice that, that emotion is sometimes inward, but is observed outward, right? So God already knows the emotions from the inside, correct? But man doesn't always see the heart. But man can see the outside. This would be another reason in my mind, although this is not what the text is, is trying to get you to get across, but you see an example here. That in life sometimes, when we're trying to communicate and there's, emo- there's emotions we're trying to communicate, I'd prefer you not do that through a text message. I'd prefer you not do that through Facebook, all right? I'd prefer you sit down with a person face-to-face so that they could see the emotions that are coming out of the heart, all right? Can't know the heart completely, but we can see enough that if your face is fallen, they can see what's going on. I think one of the things that's really terrible about the way our culture has pushed itself is that everybody is looking to just quickly communicate and be very efficient, and they're missing the emotions of the moment. They're missing the emotions that people would display. They're missing when a person is angry, when they're discouraged, or when they're joyful and they need somebody to rejoice with them. Because we're not incarnational enough. That's why God wants you to gather together with his people. God wants you to have conversations, face-to-face conversations. That's why when, when you're sitting down with your family, God wants you to put away the phone, right? You can't read someone's emotions by texting each other at the dinner table, right? You've, you've got to actually put it down. Do you know, I'm, I'm almost confident, but I'm not sure, but I'm almost confident. I don't think there's going to be cell phones in heaven. I, there, I said it. I just don't think. I'll be really mad if there is, right? But I'm very confident there will be face-to-face, incarnational, looking at each other and looking at the emotions. What's great about heaven? Heaven's not devoid of emotions. You know that? It's not devoid of emotions. There is, you read Revelation 4 and 5, you see clearly there is emotion. Read the last two chapters of Revelation. There is joy to be had. So we see here that, that... that Cain has these emotions, and we see in the text, he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? In chapter 4, verse 6, if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door. Crouching like a lion. Crouching like an animal. Crouching like an animal that's just waiting until it can pounce on its prey. The Lord warns him and says, what's going on right now is your sin, your emotions are sin-impacted and sin-impaired. Be careful. Be alarmed. Be ready. Its desire is against you. You can rule over it, but sin is at your door. It's waiting. It is sin-impaired and sin-impacted. You know what's interesting? We're in Genesis 4. You know what happens in Genesis 3, just a chapter 4? Man falls into sin, right? Man has a sin nature. This sin nature is what Cain and Abel have. And we're just a chapter removed, and we already have murder, don't we? We already have We're a chapter away from the fall in Genesis 3. And already emotions are controlling how men respond to life. Here's Cain. Lack of faith, lack of belief leads to murder. And and God warns him how this is all happening emotionally. Sin wants him. And he gives him to it. Because our emotions are sin impacted and sin impaired. They are. That's why you can't really, we never can say to ourselves. Well, I feel like, I feel like God wants me to leave my husband because God wants me to be happy with my life. 
I feel. I've prayed. And I had this feeling from God that it was okay to leave my wife. And I know it was from God. I feel. So did Cain. Cain was warned about it and said, uh 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 uh. Do what God said with the right heart that God said. Sin's at your door like a, it's this, you are sin impacted and sin impaired. It wants you, it's coming for you. I mean, we do understand this. Sin is not a light thing, it wants us, right? Every day of our life, that, that sinful nature wants us. We are born with a sinful nature. Now, if you think, oh, no, that's not true, Nick. They develop a sinful nature later in life. When they're little babies, they're so sweet. And yes, they are sweet, aren't they? But I tell you what, if a, if a little baby could verbalize itself, it would, it would strangle its mom's neck and demand its milk. You know it. It is there. We see it reflected here. There's a doctrine that's called total depravity. We won't go into all that that doctrine um, talks about. However, I will tell you this. The beginning of April, for the month of April, and maybe after that, in the men's class, uh, Austin's going to be teaching on the doctrines of grace, and he'll cover total depravity, right? Do you still believe in total depravity? You do? Okay. All right. So, uh, but you're a good person, right? I mean, you know, no? Okay. Yeah, that's wrong. Good. All right. You corrected me. Here's what total depravity in the scriptures mean, and, and we're not going to cover all the nuances of it, but let me cover one um, aspect of it here in total depravity. When we say the word total depravity, we're not saying that, that there's nothing good in men into the point that God's common grace isn't in man's life and that even an unbelieving man can't do good things. He can do good things. I would question those good things aren't, those good things aren't being done for the glory of God. They're done for the glory of himself. But man in common grace can do good things. That total depravity doesn't mean that pagans can't do good things for their own glory and benefit. Of course, not for God's. Not for his glory and benefit. But total depravity means this. That the fall in Genesis 3 has touched all parts of our life. It's touched our body, and you know it, right? If you don't think depravity has touched your body, it's because you're 20, okay? Get in your 30s and 40s and 50s, and you're going to know it's touched you, right? You know it. You know gravity's pulling you down. You just know it. It's coming. It's coming, my friend. It's coming, all right? You just enjoy your 20s all you can, friend, all right? You soak it up. You wake up in the morning, feel good. You know, you just do it. But I would say this. Total depravity also affects not only our bodies, but affects our souls. affects our heart. It affects everything about us. Which means we can't ever claim our emotions are just 100% right and accurate. Everything we feel is right. That's why it's not wrong. It's not wrong to say as you're talking with another follower of Christ and go, man, I, I, I feel like I feel this in my life. I feel this when you said this. This is the feeling that I got when you said it. But also you got to hold some tentedness and go, you may be wrong. So a lot of times, even when like a husband and wife are describing the feelings that they have, you have, God has feelings, you have feelings, you should talk about your feelings, Right. You should just not put your feelings on par with Scripture, and we should admit that our feelings are sin-impacted and sin-impaired, which means you and your spouse having a conversation about how you felt about something they did, not a bad thing. What's bad is that you would claim that that feeling is 100% righteous. That's why sometimes when you describe your feelings, you may say, I could be wrong. You know, I am a sinner. This is the feeling I had interpreted from what you said, right? Right? You're kind of owning a good, a good anthropology of man in that moment. 
But total depravity means that all, that all parts of our life have been touched, even our emotions, our heart, everything. Let me read for you what one author said. While often misunderstood, the doctrine of total depravity is an acknowledgement that the Bible teaches that as a result of the fall of man, every part of man, his mind, his will, his emotions, and flesh have been corrupted by sin. In other words, sin affects all areas of our being, included who we are and what we do. It penetrates to the very core of our being so that everything is tainted by sin. He goes on to say, there's a common misconception regarding total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that man is as wicked or as sinful as he could be. Nor does it mean that man is without a conscience or any sense of right or wrong. Neither does it mean that man does not or cannot do things that seem to be good when viewed from a human perspective or measured against human standards. So it's not saying that good things can't happen. I told you a while ago, though, I I would make a case that they're not motivated by the glory of God. That is the difference that redeemed people, that people in Christ can do. When we actually do things, we can do it for the glory, for the glory and exaltation of God, which is a totally different thing. When we are doing things for the glory and exaltation of God in his name, our emotions can be righteous, true, and just, and good. Although I wouldn't ever go to a point of saying, there's no way there was no sin in me. You can't do an honest reading of scripture. You can't read Romans chapter 7 and find that Paul is struggling with sin. When Paul says, the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. The things that, that I shouldn't, I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. So you can't ever negate this idea that, that although in Christ we have victory over the sinful nature, there still is a sinful nature that's residing there. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But here's my heart, Lord. Take it for thy courts above. So our emotions. Look here in the text of Genesis chapter 4. We can find clearly that, his, that Cain's emotions have been impacted by total depravity. His desires um, are not what they should be. When you, look in, when you look over in Jude chapter 11, there would be these kind of, these kind of earthly desires, passion desires. It's ruling over him. So we're sin-impacted and sin-impaired. Which leads me to number eight. Our emotions are not always righteous, just, loving, and appropriate. Look in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, just two chapters over. It says this. This is leading up to the flood, leading up to Noah. Total depravity. God has said that sin has touched every part of our life. There's no part untouched. We have to be weary of that. God's warning came of that. Verse 5 of chapter 6, verse 5. Look at the lead up to the flood. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. What? How far does depravity take it? Pretty far. I mean, we're pretty far. God's like, man, not only is his, his actions are wicked... But, but before this, the intentions of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, they plunged all of creation, all into underneath the curse. And all who were born after that were born with this sinful nature, which means we are inclined, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are inclined to evil without a regenerated heart. Without that, we will go astray. And man does exactly what 
depravity would do. The thoughts and intents of his heart was only evil continually. Perpetuated and perpetuated. We see this. Tied to our emotions. This is why they're not always righteous, just, loving, appropriate. God's emotions always are, but ours aren't always. Right? Now, I don't, I don't say this because we're going to get through the rest of the outline and we get to 13, 14, and 15. We can see that we actually can show godly emotion. We can show that, right? And we actually can, if there is an appropriate for the glory of God, for the love of God, for the love of others, we can actually have wise and appropriate emotions that we show. But I would tell you, this is one of the things that you'll we'll find. When our emotions are most displaying our sinfulness, it's when everything's about us. It really is. There's this self-exaltation and a lack of belief in what God has said in his word. But when we are believing what God has said in his word, and it's not about us, but about serving others, then in those moments, our emotions tend to be right. They tend to be displayed rightly. So we see that, that this evil heart, this wickedness of man was on the earth continually. Let me take you to another passage, Jeremiah seventeen nine. Jeremiah seventeen nine. Our emotions are not always righteous, just loving, and appropriate. Jeremiah seventeen nine. Now this is speaking to Judah. Judah is about to go. Yeah, hey, we went through a whole twelve minor prophets, right? Y'all know the story that Judah is about to go into um, exile. Some of the things that are going to happen, but God's going to bring him out of exile someday. God's going to bring him out someday. And there's some discussion of what that's going to look like. God's going to bring them out someday. But let yet look over at chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, this is in, in reference to Judah. This is in reference to their sin. God, God is going to take them out. God had to take them out, but he's going to bring them back someday. But they have deceitful Wicked hearts, desperately sick, who can understand it? I mean, you look at Israel's history, you read enough of the Bible, you'll find that God has been merciful and merciful and merciful time and time again. God sets everything upright and they just keep punting on first down. And yet God says the reason is the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick, who can understand it? Which just means this, when it comes to our emotions, we do have to hold a bit of reserve and go, okay, wait a minute, my heart is deceived at times. It's desperately sweet. I don't understand everything about my heart. Therefore, I can't truly go by this idea of I'm just going to follow my heart because my heart's deceived. That means I can't follow all my emotions because they're deceived. So then the question becomes this. Well, then, Nick, when can I? Do I need to be so afraid of emotions that because there's this total depravity that's on my life and the, the, the fall, the curse of sin has touched every part, then when can I? Can I ever have any confidence that my emotions are good emotions or godly emotions? Like, Nick, help me out. Can you, can you just drop me a line to know? Because, yeah, I get it. I'm a sinner. I know. I'm wretched. I get it. Can I just know when am I actually showing that? Is that a question you're asking or is that just me? That's the question. Okay, good. Because I wasn't even going to answer it if no one said that. I was just going to keep going. Okay, look in verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart, and I test the mind. Right? I, the Lord, search the heart, and I test the mind. So the Lord knows exactly what's in our heart. The Lord knew what was in Cain's heart. The Lord knew what was in Abel's heart. The Lord accurately diagnosed it. Right? 
The problem is we can't always accurately diagnose everything in our heart. However, there is some indication that we can have some help. We see here that the Lord says, I search the heart, I test the mind, I know. And just like God knew what was in Cain's heart, God knows what's in our heart. And the great thing is God has not left us in in, in some kind of mystery to not have any kind of help during this moment. Look over at Hebrews chapter 4, and I'll show this to you. Hebrews chapter 4. This is why his word is so precious to us. This is why the name of our church is Carville Bible Church. This is why we should read the book, look at the book, read books that help us to understand the book. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow. So the word of God cuts right to the soul, right to the middle, right into us, right? Right into the midst of the emotions and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We can't always know our heart. God knows our heart completely. But yet, if we are planted in the word, motivated by the word, which motivates us to the glory of God, This means that the word of God can discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart, which means the more the word is in our hearts, the more the word is guiding our hearts, the more the word is how we're filtering everything we're doing. We will actually display emotions appropriately. We'll actually we'll actually do things the way God wants. That means we'll actually when we, for instance, you you have in Ephesians 431, we looked at last week, you have sinful, sinful anger. We can have a right response to sinful anger in verse 32 of tenderheartedness, kindness, and that we want to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. What is that? That's us being able to have godly emotion in response instead of sinful emotion. What is that? That is a life that's being transformed by the word of God. The person who is the most emotionally adjusted person is the person who is filtering their thoughts. through What is the word of God said? What has God said about himself? What has he said about his character? This is why reading the scriptures, studying the scriptures, talking with people that know the scriptures, doing theological study. We want to get to know what God is like even more because that's how it filters out our emotions. That's how our emotions. Although, remember, you still got to maintain some cautiousness because of our sinful natures that exist. We know that we can have a new nature in Christ and his word can lead us into an accurate perception of what life should be like. So we find here that the word of God, it, gut, it guts right to the thoughts and intentions of man's heart. Do you see that? How praiseworthy is that? So yes, our emotions are not always righteous, just loving and appropriate. Our emotions are sin-impacted and sin-impaired. And our emotions originate in our thoughts and we are responsible for them. But praise God that God has given us his word to help filter out these things right. That the more his word is oozing through our soul. And not only has God given us his word, but in Christ, God has given us a new heart. Do this. We'll, we'll end with this. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Speaking to the children of Israel as they're in exile, and it's time for them to. Someday the Lord's going to bring them back. He's going to bring them back to the land. The whole reason God brings them back to the land um, is going to ultimately lead to the fact that 
The Messiah is going to come from those people in the land of Israel. It's going to come from the line of Jeconiah, who gets, who, who gets preserved through even the Babylonian captivity. I know that's more information than what you probably wanted. But then Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Look what God says about what he's going to do for Israel. And, and this is pointing towards what he does for us in Christ. He says in verse 26, When I bring him to the land, and when ultimately God brings Christ into our life, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So here's the interesting thing. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be, statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So Ezekiel says, key to obeying the word of God, key to this, the word of God, discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart, key to all this is the person needs to have the spirit of God. So we have total depravity, but we actually, when we become a follower of Jesus, we get the spirit of God. Although we have total depravity, we now have a new spirit working within us that now can work out our emotions. And that spirit of God that helps us to understand the word of God and apply the word of God. That spirit of God is part of this God, God giving us a new heart. And this new heart gets to do something that the old heart couldn't do. The new heart in Christ, through his word, through the spirit, can actually put on display emotions and write in appropriate ways. Can actually obey God's word. But the heart that's not been transformed by Jesus can't do that. It was interesting, when I became a follower of Jesus at 16 years old, I can remember praying the prayer to trust Christ as Savior. And I can remember, although I, no one pointed this out to me, I can remember going home that night, and I had this hunger and thirst for God's Word. I just started reading it, I remember. It was like something was going on. And, I, and by the way, don't measure, my experience is not the measurement of your salvation. You are declared righteous by the finished work of Christ. But there was something in my soul that was like, this God is glorious. He is better. I got to find out what it's like. What was happening? There was a new heart that I was given. Right? The spirit of God was in me. And that spirit of God was trying to lead me to the word of God. So that my life could be about not the glory of Nick, but the glory of Christ. My life was about the glory of Christ. It changed everything. So I want this. Our emotions are corrupted, yet they are controllable through the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, if Jesus is your Lord and King. A reason to trust Jesus as Lord and King is not so your emotions can be under control. It's for the glory of God. But I will tell you this. There are benefits to being in Christ. There is nothing like having some emotional stability in life. Because life is, have you ever noticed how vulnerable life is? Have you ever noticed how vulnerable we are to our thoughts? Have you ever noticed how vulnerable we are to our feelings? I mean, really, have you ever noticed how vulnerable we are to our feelings? I would be scared to be without Christ and, and be so vulnerable to the whims and waves of the feelings of a depraved heart. That would be scary. Praise God that we've got Christ, right? Praise God that you can have a new heart. You have the Spirit of God in you. 
and the word of God can change you. Would you stand? And we're going to sing back to the Lord and enjoy him in this moment. Worship team, you can come up. And would you join with me in prayer? I am so thankful. Several in here, by faith, like Abel, have come to you the great sacrifice. If there's somebody here that hasn't, may this be their day. May there be a conversation. And for the rest of us, may we once again, as we hear each other edify, as we take communion, may we be challenged once again to revisit the good news. This good news has given me a new heart. has given me the spirit. And now I can discern the word of God. I'm alive to the word of God. I'm not dead in my sins, but I'm alive to God through Christ Jesus. So help us to see the, the, help us see the value and benefits of this for the glory of God. We praise you. And God's people said, amen.